Good evening. If you've got your Bibles tonight, could you please turn to Revelation chapter 21? Revelation chapter 21. So you can see we're nearing the end of our Revelation series. And uh, that's always a time of trepidation for a preacher when they come to the end of a series. Uncharted waters. To finish two series around the same time, that's dangerous. Revelation chapter 21, and we're going to read tonight from verse 5 through to verse 8. Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, the word of the Lord says, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. The fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Let's pray and commit our time to the Lord. Our Father, we thank you that we can come and sit under your word tonight. We pray, Lord, that you would help these words to uh, come to life as we understand them, Lord. We know that your word is living, and that is by nature the fact that it comes directly from you. These words have the seal of your authority upon them, and we pray that we would find encouragement tonight as we see uh, what your word has to say about our future. Help us to see, Lord, that this book is our future, uh, one way or another. And I pray that you would uh, bless us with an understanding of where we stand before you tonight, And may we be encouraged or challenged, Lord, whatever that might be. And so we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. By the time we reach Revelation chapter 21, we have seen heaven and earth pass away in John's book. Uh, Everything with which we are familiar now is gone. The sand, the sea, the earth, the atmosphere, things like that have all passed away. And there is a new heaven and a new earth. When God says here, behold, I make all things new. And he, said, he that sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. It is a statement in the present tense. I make all things new. This is not a future time that's being spoken of when John's looking here. God is saying, behold, I make or I am making all things new. At this future time, John is speaking, this time when the book of Revelation is picturing, God will be presently carrying out the renewal of all things. He will be making those things new. And so this is a declaration of God's completing the work, not a statement of intent. This is something that God is doing at this time. And so God is here making all things new just as he had promised. And so if we were to look at this portion and look at what's happening, the Word of God has literally outlasted the heavens and the earth. Uh, The heaven heaven and earth have passed away, they're gone. And yet the Word of the Lord stands sure. You know, from the point of view in which we stand at this point in time, uh, the words of the world 
and the things of the world around us seem more reliable, seem more certain. But this is simply a function of perspective. Though the world is visible and God is only accessible through faith, we have to resist the temptation of relying upon the things that we can see, for they are less certain than the things we can't see. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but it's true. God's word says in Luke chapter 21 and verse 33, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. The words of God, the word of God that we find here in the scriptures, the words of God are secure. They are words that can be relied upon. They are words that are literally timeless. They will last forever. God has John write these words down to show that what Christians are hoping in will one day actually happen. And all the things that Christians are having to experience at the moment, particularly in persecution and temptation, will one day be gone. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And you know what? John is seeing that. He's seeing the heaven and earth gone, but the words of God still standing. God makes five statements here. Five statements that will outlast the world. Five statements that will outlast the world. And they are what can be described, they are what we can associate with these words at the end of verse 5. It says, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write. Write. I want the church to know this. Write. Why? For these words are true and faithful. These things are true and faithful. How true and faithful? Well, they'll last longer than the mountains. They'll stand longer than the bedrock. The words of God, these words of God will never, ever pass away. And so, what do we need to be reminded of tonight? There's five statements that are settled by God. First statement, point one, the Creator will finish. The Creator will finish. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 6, it's a simple little statement, it says, and He said unto me, it is done. It is done. The it, which is finally brought to completion here, is the new heaven and the new earth. It is done. I have made the new heaven and the new earth. The eternal dwelling place of the saints is now finished. The old world that once troubled the saints is now gone. It is done. Now, the sense of completion in this phrase is something that we have absolutely no experience with. None. Some 2,000 years, Christians have looked forward to the time when God's plan of redemption will be complete. But every Christian, no matter what era they have lived in, has always looked forward to this time as a hope. No one has ever seen it happen. But that is the hope of the Christian, isn't it? We don't get saved for government benefits. <laughs> we don't get saved for social standing. We get saved for eternity. And we get saved because we are looking forward to that open relationship we'll have with God one day and the hope of living in heaven with Him. But that eternity for the Christian has always been that, a hope. 
Never a present reality. Never. Romans chapter 8, verses 24 and 25 uh, encapsulate this idea. Turn over there. Romans chapter 8, verses 24 and 25. It shows us that hope is by nature future. Romans chapter 8, verse 24 says, For we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Christians have been waiting ever since there were Christians for this hope. And that waiting has not stopped yet. And even before this, the Old Testament saints looked for a city, didn't they? We saw that with Abraham. We saw that they looked forward to a time where they would one day live in a city with God And you know what? The temptation for those who wait is to think that this day will never come. Uh, Christians, believers have been waiting so long for this day that perhaps it will just be an eternal waiting. Will that day ever come? Well, God's portfolio of fulfillment, if I can put it like that, should be enough to convince all of us that that day will finally come. Because after millennia of expectation, God sent the Saviour, didn't He? And He arrived. After years of following the types in the sacrifices in the tabernacle and then in the temple, God provided Himself a lamb for a sacrifice. He came and He died. After three excruciatingly long days, God raised Jesus from the dead on exactly the right day. After another 50 days, God sent the Comforter just as He promised He would to fill the disciples and to start the church exactly on the day that He intended. And so God will declare one day, as John foresees, it is done. And in that day, our waiting, our hope, will finish. The Creator will finish the job that He promised he would. God's words are faithful. God's words are true. You might be able to look up at Beacon Hill down there near the jetty and think, wow, that's a, that's a long-standing headland. You might be able to look at Red Hill and think, wow, that's an immovable object. So I'm sure they're going to find out as they try and build a road through it. But God's words are more sure than that. God's words will outlast those sorts of permanent things even in the creation. God's record of fulfillment is unblemished. But it's our job as his people to just submit to his timetable. One day the wait will be over and we can be sure of that. And so the creator will finish. Second of all, in verse 6, the beginner will end. The beginner will end. To Revelation chapter 21 and verse 6 it says, And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. God declares himself to be the, what I'm sure you'll know, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. And this is a symbol of what is explained just then, that he is the beginning and the end. The idea is that all things came out of God and unto God all things will return. There will be no end apart from God. Imagine it as a branching out from God 
and a bringing of all things together back into God once again. Many things will deviate. Many things will distract from God like an alphabet of letters in between. But once everything is finished, God will once again be all and in all. It will all end in God and we look forward to that day. But you know, it is quite an interesting thought to consider those words, Behold, I make all things new. Behold, I make all things new. Because I'm sure that we look forward to that time and we think, yeah, it will be brand new. So many things will be the first time we've ever experienced them. We don't know what it'll be like, in fact. But although this situation is unprecedented for humans like you and I, there are a number of things that are not new for God in that day. And this is also suggested by this title of I am Alpha and I am Omega. God is the beginning and God is the end. And in some senses, the end is going to be similar for God as the, to the beginning. The world will be free of sin, suffering and rebellion. Now to you and I, that's brand new and we look forward to that time. But to God, he spent eternity past in an existence free from rebellion, sin, suffering. He's familiar with that sort of existence. God will be all and in all, but there was a time when he already was. There was a time where there was no one to deviate from God's plan. God's plan will be executed in all places in that day. And we think, wow, what a relief. (laughs) I'm not going to have to find a Christian place where people agree with me because Christianity or God's sovereignty will be everywhere. But that's not new for God. Before God created the world, that's the way things were. And so what's new for us is not necessarily new for God. God remains unchanged by all that has passed. The immutable God is the Alpha and the Omega. And despite all the things that have changed in the middle, God is unchanged. And so if God was the one who brought all that we see around us out of nothing, then it is logical to think that that same God could bring all that has spread out back to himself. However, one thing will be different, even for God. God will not dwell in exactly the same way as he did before creation, because the triune God will have eternal company. Isn't that a wonderful thought? That's our third truth that is introduced to us here in this passage. The provider will suffice. Verse 6, he says, "I I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. God is the Alpha and Omega, but only God is the Alpha and Omega. There is only one. He is the only first cause. There can only be one first cause. Only God is that. And only God, therefore, is self-sufficient. Only God can live without depending upon anything else. That's what makes him God. And so although we are glorified in heaven, we will still have needs. Because we are not the Alpha and Omega. 
We are not self-sufficient beings. And that is not a function of sin. That's a function of not being God. (laughs) We will live in dependence upon God. And that's what this passage tells us. There's not going to be a problem for us. Because so long as the provision for that need and accessibility to that need is provided, then no problem is ever going to arise from our dependence upon God for all eternity. Or if we can put it another way, being thirsty for life is not a problem so long as God constantly provides the right water. Okay? Being thirsty for all eternity for, for God is not a problem so long as God promises and delivers everything that we need. Now, whether that water is two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen, I think is a pointless discussion. It is uncertain whether this is even literal water. Perhaps it's just a reference to eternal life in the picture of water that we're familiar with. And it's also uncertain as to how often we will require this life-giving water, this water of life. But the picture here helps us to see that there is going to be a constant yearning for God that is going to prevent our complacency and prevent our monotony. There is going to be a constant drawing towards God's provision and there is going to be a constant providing on God's behalf of our needs. And so we will have a thirst for God and God will provide our satisfaction and that is going to be an eternal relationship. Only God is self-sufficient. Only God needs nothing. And so we will depend on him for all eternity and we will never have to wonder what will happen if the water runs out. Because God promises that the thirsty will always have drink. Fourthly, God declares the overcomer will inherit. Verse 7. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And when we were way back in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we had a look at the promises to the overcomer. When we looked at the letters to the churches, and we saw that these promises to the overcomer are not high uh, rewards for high achievers. They're not like scout merit badges that you have to earn by having different sorts of Christian virtues that show that you are a higher level of Christian than others. I'll remind you of a quote that I um, brought to your attention at that point. Thomas says, at the consummation of the book, only two categories of people exist, those inside the city and those outside. Among those inside the city, no distinction exists between overcomers and non-overcomers. And so John uses the word overcomers to refer to all Christians. And this is not the first time that he has done this. Uh, back in 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, he takes up this idea of being an overcomer and he describes what that is. Have a look over there. 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. Really helps when you've got the Bible as a commentary on the Bible. 1 John 5, 4 says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. 
Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. And so in John's vocabulary, the overcomers are those who have been born again by faith in Jesus Christ. Very simply, overcomers are saved people. Because Christ's victory is so certain and the result of our faith is so settled, then God uh, describes us as people who have already overcome because the victory that Christ won is already settled. And it is a way of referring to the children of God. Now, why didn't he just say the saved? Why didn't he just say the redeemed? Well, one reason may be that there were many in the church who claimed to be the saved. There were many who claimed to be part of God's family. But John's point was that true faith is overcoming faith. And so within the professing church, there will be overcomers who are the genuinely saved. I think that's what John is getting at with this terminology. An actual Christian among all those who claim to be Christians. And as those with faith in God, at this time in the perspective from Revelation chapter 21, as those who have faith in God stand with God and watch the old heaven and the old earth pass away, it is clear that whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. Why? Because the world is gone and they are still there. Faith in God outlasts the world. God declares that the overcomers will inherit all things. He that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God, that's how John defines an overcomer, will inherit God's eternal riches. And so we see then that eternity future, if we can put it that way, is different to eternity past. Because there will be people with faith in Jesus Christ living with God in sweet fellowship for all eternity. In eternity past, there was perfect unbroken fellowship within the triune Godhead. And in the future state, we get to share in that fellowship. It's a surreal thought. If I bring this idea to you of inheritance, God says here that the overcomers will inherit all things. Inheritance can bring up that idea of dollar signs. What am I going to inherit one day? But inheritance is a bittersweet thing, isn't it? Because in order to receive an inheritance, a person is usually bereaved of fellowship with the person who left the inheritance. Comes after the departure of a loved one. But that's the wonderful thing about our inheritance with God. Our heavenly inheritance doesn't require that we are bereaved of our father. <laughs> we get to enjoy sweet, eternal fellowship with our father while also enjoying the inheritance of our father. And Revelation chapter 21 and verse 7 makes this very clear. It says, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God and he shall be my son. We get the inheritance and the father. That's a wonderful thing. And so the true and faithful words of God promise an inheritance to the overcomers. But you know what? The next verse promises an inheritance to those who fail to overcome. Those who, in contrast to overcoming the world, those who succumb 
to the world. They will inherit too. It's our fifth and final truth from God's mouth. The succumber will inherit. Verse 8 of Revelation chapter 21 says, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. John lists here eight practices of those who aren't going to inherit with the believers. And each of these practices reveal what we could call a succumbing to the temporal sinful world, a joining in with those things that God is going to put away before the eternal state. And so because they've become a part of the departing world, they share in the fate of that departing world. It's taken away. The first of these is fearful. Uh, this is interesting because uh, the word that's usually used for fear in the New Testament is phobos. But this one is not. It's the word delois. De and it's the idea not just of being fearful, but the idea of cowardice. The idea of fleeing at the, at the thought of fear or at the presentation of fear. And this same word is used in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7, that very familiar verse. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And I think the, even though the word is not mentioned, the idea is that which is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 10, where it says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Those who believe in Jesus Christ, those who have a real personal faith in Jesus Christ, are overcomers, not deserters in times of persecution. This word was used a lot of those in the early church who, when they were persecuted, recanted their faith, gave up and walked away from the Christian faith out of persecution. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians don't have times of weakness. And that's the danger when we get to this verse in Revelation chapter 21. Some people see this as a list of disqualifications for Christians. If you do these things, you lose your salvation and you never get to heaven. But that's not what this passage is talking about. Not at all. Sometimes we fail to trust God. Sometimes we hide our faith under a bushel, as it says in the Gospels. This is not a reference to that. This is a reference to those who yield easily to the opposition. Why? Because they're not genuinely saved. They are not believers. They draw back from the faith that they professed because they are not God's children and because their own strength fails. And so the fearful, and then the next description is the unbelieving those who reveal that they aren't really saved because they give away that faith they once confessed. Perhaps it's through fear, as in the previous case, but perhaps it's through temptation. Perhaps it's through the lusts of the present world. Perhaps it's because of bitterness and unwillingness to give up something and it drives them away from Christ. It's an evidence that they were never really saved in the first place. They're unfaithful because their faith wasn't genuine. And we all know people who haven't gone on for the Lord. And that faith, faith that gives up, is the faith that makes us wonder whether they were actually saved in the first place. 
And so these two categories are often used, uh, and I think that they refer to people within the professing church who were actually not saved under the surface. But as we go on, we see that the list becomes a little more overt in rebellion. The next one is the abominable, where the first two examples can be found among those who are Christians. The abominable are those who indulge in the vilest of sins. The English word abominable is translated from the Greek word talking about pollution. The word is in the perfect middle, it's a perfect middle participle, which means that it is a past action with a present result and it's an action performed with regard to oneself. And so the idea here is that the person is polluted because they polluted themselves. Through all the things that they did in their own life, they are now a polluted person. They are abominable through the things that they have agreed to. It's no shock, is it? The consequences of living in filth is that a person ends up polluted. And yet, people seem to not want to admit that fact, whether they be Christians or whether they be unbelievers. Sin sticks. What we do shapes who we are. The list goes on, and I think the next few I I don't really need to explain very much. Murderers, whoremongers, those who practice fornication, this word really speaks about. Sorcerers, those who practice witchcraft, which is a sin according to the scriptures. Idolaters, those who worship other gods, and all liars. And aren't we surprised? That liars comes after murderers, whoremongers, idolaters, sorcerers. We would see a difference here, but God counts lying with the practices that characterize those who will perish with the world. Lying is included as part of those sins. Revelation, as we mentioned before, is written to the seven churches. And it's written with the intent that it might help them to overcome the present distress, the present temptation or the present persecution by showing them what's coming. An encouragement, a challenge based upon the future. Don't side with the world against God because look where the world's going to end up. And this list, this list in verse 8, serves as a warning to those who were in the church. It's a warning to those who think they're a part of the church but who are practicing these things or who find these things in their own selves. Now, as I mentioned before, this is not a list that causes a Christian to be left out of heaven. And I'm sure we can see why. Paul was a murderer, wasn't he? The maiden in Philippi was what we could call a sorcerer, or at least she fits the category. A Rahab would fit the category of a whoremonger. And yet they are all people of God. They were all saved from that sin. And lest we say, well, what about when a Christian commits those things? What if those things were committed before that person was saved? Does that disqualify them from going into heaven? Well, Peter struggled with cowardice as a believer, didn't he? David, as a believer, struggled with murder. (laughs) The brother in Corinth struggled with fornication. God's children though they may fall, are not to be characterized by these things. And so this is not a disqualification list for the Christian, but it's a list of characteristics of what people are like who are not genuinely saved. 
Within the church, there have always been people who look like Christians, but aren't. They might be the children of Christians. They might be the friends of Christians. They might be the ministry helpers of Christians. They might be the ministry leaders of Christians. But whatever other relation to Christians they might have, they are not Christians themselves. And it's entirely possible that someone could be born into a family who goes to this church, grow up in this church and go all the way through their life faithfully attending this church and still not be saved. That is entirely possible. And John says that these kinds of people, those people who are not saved, they too will receive their inheritance. The end of verse 8, it says that all those sorts of people, categories of people shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. We've already looked at that idea of the second death, but that first bit, they shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. Whether they try and look like Christians and fail, or whether they live their whole life in outward filth, or whether they just tell a lie. If they haven't got faith, personal faith in Jesus Christ, then they won't overcome the world. And unbelievers won't receive an inheritance in the new heaven and the new earth, but they will have a part, and that word part is also translated in our New Testament as a portion or a region in the lake of fire. And so if you think about it, those who are not saved have a plot of land, a plot of land in the lake of fire for all eternity. Just as a Christian has a place prepared so do the unbelievers. God knows where they will dwell for all eternity. And that is a warning to those who are taking refuge in the church, but those who are not God's children. You know, someone has rightly said, God has many children, but no grandchildren. Unless you are God's child by your own faith in Christ, then your inheritance with God your inheritance is not with God in heaven. Unless the faith is yours in Jesus Christ, then you don't have a home in heaven. And I don't want to tell you that you do because you're on your way to hell. And no matter how close you might live to Christians, no matter how much time you might spend with Christians, it doesn't make you a Christian. Remember Brother Fraser saying in one of his illustrations, just because you live in a garage, it doesn't make you a car. <laughs> If you don't have your own personal faith, you're not a Christian. And so heaven and earth shall pass away. John's talking about a time when it already has. But God's words shall not. In the end, God will make all things new. A new heaven, a new earth, a new body. All these new things. But you know what? There will be some old things there too. And they will be the old words of God. And they won't change. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you will, no matter what comes before it, you will end up in the lake of fire. Because God's words endure. God's words are eternally true. But just as sure and infinitely more encouraging is the promise that trusting in Christ reserves for us an inheritance with our Father. 
And that inheritance is an inheritance that, praise the Lord, can be enjoyed with our Father, not after a relationship with our Father. And we thank the Lord that the words that he has for us are true and faithful. Let's pray. My God, I want to thank you, Lord, that uh, as our hearts search for truth, and as we search, Lord, for a compass and to know, Lord, where to anchor our faith, we can find unchanging words like we find in the Scriptures. We thank you that we can know, Lord, that regardless of what happens in the world and how the world might change, we know that faith in Jesus Christ will result in eternal life with you and a lack of faith in Jesus Christ will result in an eternal damnation in the lake of fire. I pray that everyone tonight would see that as clearly as it's written in your scriptures. And I pray that you would help each of us to consider the question whether we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ or not. I pray that tonight might be a time when someone stops associating with the children of God and joins the family of God. I pray that that might be a wonderfully encouraging time for them. But Father, as we continue to see the world before us, help us to see it as a vanishing world and help us to recognize that the things we are to live for are things written in your scriptures. We thank you, Lord, for the encouragement tonight. We pray that you would work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.